1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah is still at Mount Carmel where he took on the prophets of Baal in that epic showdown we looked at Sunday morning and talked about and considered where Elijah truly lived out in his ministry what his name means, what his mission is. Eliyah, Yahweh is God. He took on the prophets of Baal to determine once and for all whose God is God. And the false prophets of Baal prayed hard to Baal all day long, but to no avail there was no answer. Elijah said maybe he's occupied or gone aside or on a journey, perhaps he's asleep. Maybe he's in the restroom. And that's actually one of the things that Elijah says that cracks me up as he taunts them. But then finally, Elijah has his opportunity. Toward the end of the day, early evening, he prays to the Lord a short 20-second prayer. And boom, our God who is a consuming fire, Deuteronomy 4.24 and Hebrews 12.29 tells us, sent a consuming fire from the heavens, incinerating Elijah's offerings, Burning the oxen and the wood and the stones and the water and even the dust was baked as the fire came down. And Elijah then slays 450 of the false prophets at the nearby Kishon Brook. And that's where we pick up our plot line tonight. We're going to get the verses up to you, I think, or maybe we're not. We're going to just... What do you think, John? We don't have to. Okay, John's going to work on it. See if we can get the verses up because they, they got to him a little late. My fault. Uh, Cheryl's home by the way which is part of the reason they got to him a little late so she had an awesome trip and then when she's awake ask her how it went (laughs) so what uh, started out as five days turned into ten but um, boy I I can't even begin to tell you all that that God did on that trip and and even with the delays uh, the opportunities that that she had while she was there but um, we look at the whole thing as an amazing amazing blessing I hated having her gone that long I mean you can only eat so much macaroni and cheese you know Um, but we're sure glad she's back and and we're very excited about what what the Lord is doing you'll be hearing more about this uh, not just with my family but uh, with uh, several families who are involved with uh, this place called Beacon House in Ghana and several families here at the bridge who are looking at, at adopting children from there and uh, boy, it's a, there's a connection there that, that God is making. It's exciting. I'm, I'm going to go off just for a second from the study. But it's exciting to me that a church that meets in a barn on North Woodby Island can be connected internationally in the kingdom. So that is so exciting. And Sean and I were thinking about just all the, uh, the different places that, that people have gone out from the bridge and, and the connections that we have in the international community. Um, it's, it's just it's only God. It's only what the Lord could do. Uh, certainly we aren't smart enough to figure out how to make all those connections, and yet they're there. So praise God for that. And uh, we do. We're going to pick up, okay, right now, where we left off, Elijah has had quite a run so far. If you read back, uh, chapter 17 and 18 are just filled with amazing power stuff. And we start right at the end of the slaying of the 450 prophets of Baal, but it's not over yet. Verse 41, Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink. For there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. Now that's a statement made in faith, because there was not a sound of a roar of a heavy shower. Not yet. The sky was completely clear. But Elijah is speaking as one who knows there will be a heavy downpour. He has a great faith. Verse 42, So Elijah went up to eat and drink, or Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. 
And he crouched down on the earth and he put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. That would be the Mediterranean Sea. And so he went up and looked and said, There's nothing. He said, Go back seven times. It came about at the seventh time that he said, Behold, a cloud, as small as a man's hand, is coming up from the sea. And he said, Go up. Say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. In other words, time to move out. In a little while the sky grew black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy shower. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. James chapter 5 verse 16, 17 and 18. James writes, and again, I remind you of this, we've read this verse a few times recently, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, I have always attributed the effective to the righteous. In fact, I think recently I've even said, it's the righteousness that makes the prayer effective, and if you're in Jesus Christ, you are righteous. Because his blood makes us righteous. So we don't have to look at verses like that, step back and say, "Uh, maybe not me because I'm not having a good week, so my prayers obviously are not effective because I'm not righteous. Well, you are in Christ Jesus. His blood is what cleanses us, covers us, purifies us, and makes us righteous. But there's more to it than that. This whole idea of praying effectively. James takes Elijah as the scriptural example of an effective man of prayer. A man just like us, but who somehow has a way of connecting with God in a very effective manner. And that sounds great to me. But I wonder, is there anything I can do to pray more effectively? And in the next verse, I believe James gives us the answer to this. He says in James 5.17 that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. And I believe the key is praying in earnest. You want to be effective in your prayer life? Then you are to be earnest, fervent in your prayer life. The example is Elijah. The key is praying in earnest. Well, what does that exactly mean? Some have called this birthing prayer. In fact, if you've ever heard the term birthing prayer before, this is where it comes from. It comes from Elijah, verse 42. He crouches down on the earth, putting his face between his knees. And this position is analogous to to the position of childbirth in the Middle East at that time. The birthing position of a woman who's in labor. And that's the position that Elijah gets down in and he is praying fervently as though he's giving birth. I know guys, it sounds weird to me too. But he would get in such an odd and strange position and fervently he prays. And it's not just the position, it's the time. He prays, go look out to the sea, nothing. He prays and prays and prays, go look to the sea, nothing. He keeps praying five times, six times, finally the seventh time. There's a little bitty cloud out there. The commentators Kyle and Delich call this an attitude of deep absorption in God. I really like that. An attitude of deep absorption in God. My friends, we cannot become deeply absorbed in the Spirit of God in 20 seconds of prayer. Now Elijah had just prayed for 20 seconds and had a marvelous result. Fire fall from heaven. But to get the rain took something a little more. It took an absorption 
than God. You might want to put it this way. Elijah prayed effectively because Elijah prayed expectantly. He prayed effectively because he prayed expectantly. In the same way that a pregnant woman is expecting a birth. And there are many women in our fellowship right now who are expecting. What does that mean? It means that a day is coming, not far off, when a baby is going to be birthed. And that's the way effective prayer is. A day is coming, not far off, a moment is coming, when the response to this prayer is somehow going to be birthed. Praying effectively is praying expectantly. Elijah, think about this again. He goes to the top of Mount Carmel. The very tip top. Why up there? Because up there on the top of Mount Carmel, and you can see this in Israel, you have a vantage point of the entire land and you can look directly out to the Mediterranean Sea. Storms would come off of the Mediterranean Sea. That's where they were stirred up and they come into the land of Israel, even today, typically from the Mediterranean. So being on the top of the mountain allows Elijah a vantage point to be expectant in his prayer. I'm going to pray for rain and I'm going to put myself in the place where I can see it most easily and most quickly. He's up there, his servant is up there, and he's in this odd position praying with great expectation. But you might note this, expected praying, like an expectant pregnancy, assumes that the process is going to involve blood, sweat, and tears. An expectant mother is not looking forward necessarily to the pain. She's looking forward to the birth and what you know, the, the end result. But there is that knowledge that a birth is going to bring about struggle and sweat and, and, and even tears and, and pain and blood. And Jesus understands this probably better than any other. Luke 22:44 tells us that Jesus being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. That's called hematidrosis. It's where the capillaries expand and burst, sending the blood out of the sweat glands in someone who is under extreme duress. Hematidrosis is an actual medical situation. And Dr. Luke is the one who tells us about it. So it makes sense that he would be the one who realizes this and points it out. Do we pray with that kind of fervent expectancy? And I don't say that, you know, in, in all the years that I've grown up going to church and, and been a pastor and listened to sermons, you know, it seems like prayer and tithing are the two things that make us uncomfortable. You know, because when a pastor says, do you pray fervently? And we think, oh boy, did I pray today? <laughs> you know, when was the last time? And, and we immediately go to that place of guilt, like I just don't pray enough, instead of stepping back and saying, yeah, I, I want to learn how to do this. See, I believe the Lord responds to this simple prayer. Father, teach me to pray. Jesus did immediately. The apostle said, hey, teach us to pray. And so he begins to show them very simply how you can enter into a place of prayer with the Father. But you can't pray with expectancy quickly. It's something that takes your time. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18 says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always and pray without ceasing. So don't ever stop praying. Now I felt kind of geared up for this teaching tonight because over the past 10 days I have prayed without ceasing. God put my wife and I in a position separated by thousands of miles on either end of the planet to be in constant prayer. And you know what's interesting? 
I wasn't praying for Cheryl's safety. I, I did a few times. I mean, I did. It would come up. But I wasn't concerned about that. I had no worry about that. We were praying for what God was doing. There was a sense among both of us that something important was happening. And because that was going on, God drew me into a place where I had to pray. I mean, there, there, you know, when, when you're used to someone being there, used to Cheryl being around, and suddenly she's not, I'm, I'm praying all the time. And the focus was constant. And you might say, well, that sounds good, but I look at Elijah and I've I got to ask this question. Isn't this intensity, head between his knees, praying like this, doesn't it sound a little like the prophets of Baal? Because, Pastor Rick, I, I think on Sunday you made that comparison between the prophets of Baal praying all day and leaping about and calling out to their gods, and then Elijah just throws up a 20-second prayer, and boom, he gets a response. So which is it? Because Elijah's doing something pretty weird here now. I think if Les, on a Sunday morning, got up here and got into the birthing position, <laughs> it might come across a little odd. And we haven't seen him do that. Thankfully. What's the difference? When Elijah was in public, his prayer is short and sweet, not attracting attention to himself, but just attention to the Lord. When Elijah is in private, he is intense and he's focused. And he will do anything to pray fervently. Because prayer is not about attracting attention to yourself. It's about calling out to the Lord. And I'll tell you, that is it's a great rule of thumb for us to stand by. If we're praying in public, don't pray in such a way that you're attracting everybody to look at you. Oh, what a marvelous person of prayer. What a fantastic and spiritual guy or girl. What an amazing, what a weird position. No, not when we're in public. Public prayer is to keep all the focus on God. But when you are alone, one-on-one, when you're with the Lord, and there's no one else there to impress but the Father, the position of prayer is a very different thing. Elijah gets down into this position of humility. He prays effectively by pressing in expectantly. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 6, He says, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This kind of intensity in prayer is a good thing. But it's not something that Elijah practiced out in front of everybody publicly. It was what he did in private. When we pray, never forget, expectant prayer is not effective, though, because of our posture, our piety, or even our pleading. Effective prayer is only always effective because of the one to whom we are praying. That's why I believe Jesus says when you're praying, don't use meaningless words or meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. They suppose they will be heard for their many words. Now, by the way, we notice that, that Elijah at first prays and nothing happens. It's just kind of a nothing. His servant looks out over the water, nothing. And he prays again, nothing. And he prays again, nothing. Six times, not a single reaction to this prayer. And this is intense praying. Nothing is, re- is happening. God is not responding until the seventh time. And then the servant goes out there and all he sees is a little Winnie the Pooh shaped little black rain cloud. Am I the only one who's seen Winnie the Pooh in the honey tree? You know, it seems I'm just a little black rain cloud hovering under the honey tree. I'm only a little black rain cloud. Pay no attention to little me. See, I know the whole song. 
Winnie the Pooh dips himself in mud. Oh, who has not seen that? Raise your hand if you have not seen Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree. Okay, next Wednesday night, we're going to watch Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree instead of... No, we won't, but... Okay, back to where... Yeah. He sings, I'm just a little black rain cloud. That's what Elijah's servant sees. A tiny little cloud the size of a man's hand out there on the horizon. Why is that significant? Elijah knew the storm was coming. Before there was a single wisp of a cloud, he knew the storm was coming. And he prayed with that kind of faith. And I was thinking about this, and I'm reminded of a bizarre and kind of humorous song that Sting did back in the 80s. He had an album that came out, his third solo album, called Ten Summoner's Tales. And the song on it is called Heavy Cloud, No Rain. Heavy Cloud, No Rain. It plays out the idea of different characters in different situations who are just hoping against hope that it'll rain. That somehow the rain will be helpful to them. It's a guy wishing rain would just come wash away his blues. But he looks outside, heavy cloud, no rain. And then the next verse is a royal astrologer of King Louis the Sixteenth. Only Sting could write stuff like this. And he's hoping that rain is going to stay his execution. And he's about to be executed. And he looks up, but he looks in vain. Heavy cloud, no rain. And then the third verse is a farmer attempting witchcraft to bring rain down on his crops. He looked at the sky, but he looked in vain. Heavy cloud, no rain. The fourth and final verse is a guy in love with a girl who says she's going to save her love for a rainy day. So he looked at the sky, but he looks in vain. Heavy cloud, no rain. And this is sadly the attitude of so many people in the world today. They just don't buy that it's coming. Heavy cloud, no rain. Or no cloud at all. Or it's just a cloud the size of a man's hand. What are you saying, Rick? People say, you Christians look at the sky, but you look in vain. Once again, this last week, on a late night news talk show, they were poking fun at the rapture of the church. Now this is now the second time I've seen this happen where it's, it's come up and been made fun of and it almost makes you feel dumb. I, I tell you honestly, and I, I am one who believes in the harpazo of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Very clearly I believe in this. And I'm sitting there by myself watching the news and they start making fun of it and I started kind of, boy, shifting in my seat going, they're making me feel foolish. And the Lord said, well, Rick, do you think it's foolish? No, I don't, Lord, but I just don't like people making fun of it. And it's the world looking at Christians and saying, you guys are looking at the sky in vain. And Peter said it very clearly. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, In the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? So you know what Daniel said? Daniel said in Daniel 9.26, its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. It's going to come with or like a flood. Well, how does a flood come? Quickly. And oftentimes with great surprise, as you may have seen in the news this last week, in the rivers in the Midwest, houses floating downstream. Because the flood came suddenly and quickly. Jesus, when he says, I'm coming soon, those of you who study through Revelation may remember this. The word soon there is in taxi in the Greek, which doesn't mean he's coming in a taxi, but it means he's coming suddenly. He's coming fast. That when the end begins to roll, it will roll very quickly. Matthew chapter 16, verse 1, it tells us the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show him a sign from heaven. 
And he replied to them, When it's evening, you say, It'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times? You see, I point this out because we're not only called to pray expectantly, but we're called to live expectantly. Our very lives should affect our prayer life, and our prayer life should affect our lives. The whole thing should be an act of expectation. Jesus said He's coming. I believe He is, and soon. I believe, in fact, He's on His way. And I've been preaching this for six years. Before that, I didn't think about it much. But for the last six years of my life, when I finally stumbled across some of these fantastic, truthful scriptures... I began saying, he's coming. And on occasion we have a prophecy update. We look at what's going on in Israel and we look at what's happening in the Middle East and in the world. We talk about these things and it always comes back to the same thing. Live expectantly because he's coming. He's on his way. He will be back soon. And right now, gang, I believe there's a cloud that's growing on the horizon and I believe when he comes it will be suddenly, as he said, like a woman in labor. I'm going to come suddenly. And Jesus says these wonderful words, Luke 21, 28, but when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, I've actually had people say to me or send me emails and say, you've been saying Jesus is coming and he's on the way for years now, so where is he? He's on the way. He's coming. I don't know the day or the hour, but man, I can read the little clouds in the sky. And the storm is coming. <laughs> I'm reminded of uh, Ben Stiller in uh, <clears throat> Night at the Museum. Remember when he was getting in the face of the monkey and he's like, Storm's coming. Storm is coming. How many people have seen that movie? Okay, good. There's a few. Some of you haven't. All right. Night at the Museum and Winnie the Pooh of the Honey Tree so you can get some context and understanding to Rick's teaching tonight. Now, remember that Elijah and Israel are now at the end of three and a half years of waiting. There has been a famine and a drought and it's been intense. But these three and a half years in Elijah's life have been filled with supernatural stuff. It's been absolutely amazing. First, Elijah reports the famine to Ahab and the rain stops. And then Elijah receives bread and meat from the mouth of ravens sent by the Lord at Kareth. And then the Lord replenishes a bowl of flour and a jar of oil for months on end there at Zarephath up in the north. Then the Lord answers Elijah's prayer as he raises a widow's son back from the death, back from death to life. Something, by the way, that we have no record of ever having happened before. It's the first time it's mentioned in the scripture. It's the first time we think of it or can look at historically that someone was purported to have been raised back from the dead. And then, Elijah watches as the Lord remits fire from heaven in a magnificent display at Mount Carmel. And in response to Elijah's prayer, the Lord then rains down a torrent from heaven, ending the drought. This all within three and a half years. Boom, boom, amazing, supernatural, incredible things where he's watching the Lord at work. And his ministry is active. And he's in a very powerful place. And finally in verse 46, as we read, it tells us the hand of the Lord was, with, was on Elijah and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. And so he outpaces Ahab's chariot. Ahab is riding by chariot, mind you. And he's already had a day or two head start. 
When Elijah takes off running and covers 25 miles and gets there before Ahab does, seven amazing supernatural feasts, all within three and a half years. And at this point, i got to believe that Elijah is at an all-time spiritual high. And he's not. In fact, it's the exact opposite. You see, we think, if it were you or me, we think, man, I need to see the power. The more miracles I can see, the greater my faith and the more exciting my life is going to be. Well, Elijah goes through three and a half years of some of the most amazing stuff in the history of the world. And where does it land him? Well, let's find out. Chapter 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more. If I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. She's gunning for him. Verse 3 says, And he was afraid. By the way, that's a translation. That's not what it says. Where it says he was afraid and arose... And ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. The phrase there that he was afraid is a translator's assumption. That's why it's important sometimes to draw back and, and, and look this stuff up. Because I've always thought for a long time in my own life, but was Elijah really afraid of Jezebel? Is that the issue here? Because as powerful a prophet as he was, it doesn't make sense with his character, it doesn't make sense with his behavior or his actions before, why he could slay 450 prophets of Baal and then be afraid of a single woman. Why? I believe it's because he's not afraid. Now, he, he goes on the run here, but the phrase here, he was afraid in verse 3, it's one word, it's the Hebrew word ra'ah, which means saw. It doesn't mean feared or afraid. In other words, he saw or he perceived what Jezebel was saying. And he arose, and it says, and he ran for his soul and came to Beersheba. Now that's why they put he was afraid, because it says he ran for his soul. So they figure, oh, well, he was running for his life, so he must have been scared. Not necessarily. He may have just been running for his life because he knew she was going to try and kill him. It doesn't mean he was afraid. It does mean he was getting out of there. He was hightailing it away. He was seeking some protection. In verse 4 it says, He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And listen to this, he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life. I am not better than my father's. I mean, this in context game. And this story is often told out of context. Elijah running from Jezebel. Look at what's happened in his life. Look at the power that he has wielded for three and a half years. And now all of a sudden he's under this juniper tree or this brush tree. And he's just sitting there and he's suicidal. He's done. It's enough. Take my life. I'm not better than my father's. That statement, by the way, means he has not been able to oust Baal worship. He hasn't done any better than any of the prophets before him for Israel. He feels like a failure. He's exhausted. He is burned out. His most telling words are, it is enough. What is enough, Elijah? Everything. I'm, I'm spent. The failure, yes. But also the ministry, the splendor, the grand miracles, the great expectations. By this point in his three and a half year tenure, Elijah is burned out. He is wiped out tired. Tired of all of it. Tired of the good stuff? Yeah. 
And it's hard to understand until you've run with the good stuff for a long period of time and find out that for all the grand things that are happening, the supernatural, it is exhausting. It's said that pastors typically last anywhere from 10 to 18 months on average before quitting the ministry. The ministry. That's not how long a pastor lasts at a church. That's the average amount of time a person who says, I'm going to follow the Lord and be a pastor, they go into ministry, and the average length of time they stay in ministry is 10 to 18 months, and they're done. I learned that before I started in youth ministry, and about 10 months in I was going, oh, I really would like to do something else. In fact, about every 10 months, I said, no, I don't say that. (laughs) Now, I I want to tell you this, and, and please... Draw back with me a little bit, because I realize I'm a pastor, but I'm not talking about myself here. I'm truly not. I'm not looking for pastoral pity. The truth is, I love what I do. Les loves what he does, or we wouldn't be doing it, we wouldn't have done it for so long. Okay? But there are some realities here about ministry, and I mean ministry for all of us, whether it's professional or voluntary, when you get engaged in ministry... People will enter in and end up saying, Lord, it's enough. They'll stop going to church. They'll stop volunteering at all. They'll just say, "Ah, I need time off from this. I can't keep... That's where Elijah is. He's burned. He's finished with this. He's tired of it. And there's been an awful lot of great things happen right before his very eyes. Why is it that people burn out? Why is it that Elijah is burning out here? Well, I don't want to speak for Elijah, but a couple things to note here. We must not confuse spiritual success with physical results. That's one clear way to burning out in your desire to do ministry or service of any kind. We must not confuse spiritual success with physical results. More often than not, we cannot tangibly measure what God is doing. Unlike Elijah, most of the time, we're not seeing the grand victories. We're just plodding along. And every now and then there's a flash in the pan and we go, and then we're kind of back to the same old. And yet, we will confuse this and we'll think, well, I'm not seeing massive growth, you know? The bridge started four and a half years ago, man, and, and we're still in this barn. You know, I really expected about 5,000 by now. I don't know about you. <laughs> you know, 5,000 people, a grand cathedral. I really thought this was going to, God was just going to explode the whole thing. You don't measure spiritual success by physical results. The reality here, gang, is there are things going on which we simply can't see. As long as we have these human eyes. Well, we can perceive things in the Spirit. We'll, we'll talk about that. In fact, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. While, while we're turning there, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 18. Paul writes, We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We walk by faith, not by sight. This morning in the staff meeting, we prayed for three people that Cheryl ran across on her trip in Ghana. One was a, a husband and wife and the two kids who were stuck in Ghana and they can't get out. They're trying to fly standby like Cheryl was and there's no getting out of there. We ended up, to get Cheryl out, we ended up having to buy a ticket and fly her up to Frankfurt and then she got on standby from Frankfurt to Atlanta and then Atlanta to Seattle. It's the only way to get her out of there. And so we prayed for these people. We don't know them. We will never know if there was any effectiveness to our prayer for this couple today. 
We're not going to know. Does that mean that God's not at work? Absolutely not. There are two other people that she came in contact with and talked to about Jesus and we prayed for them. Will we ever know if they gave their lives to the Lord? Yeah, someday. But it could be years and years. And we're not seeing the tangible physical results but that doesn't mean there's not stuff happening spiritually. There were Wednesdays, and I've shared this before, there were Wednesday nights there where we'd have like five or ten people show up. Well, does that mean that nothing's happening in the spiritual realm? No, actually it was the opposite. I believe then and continue to believe now that simply the worship and preaching of the word was preparing this place to be a place where literally the demonic would not want to have anything to do with it. It's just too clean and neat there on Wednesday nights, you know? I just get uncomfortable, you know, one demon says to the other, so they just stay away. Because the preaching of the word does something. And prayer does something. And we might not see it, but that doesn't mean it's not going on. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Literally there is combining the spiritual with the spiritual. What's he, what's he saying? Getting us in tune with the unseen as opposed to all the focus on the seen. He says in verse 14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised, that is examined or scrutinized by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Because we're learning with with the mind of Christ, that is the spirit in our lives and the Lord speaking to us, we're learning to see things from a spiritual perspective as opposed to a tangible. Why is that important? Because if we're learning to see by a spiritual perspective, we're less likely to become depressed and discouraged. Because we're not worried about what it looks like out here. We're worried about what it looks like here. And in the spirit world around us. That's our focus. So we must not confuse spiritual success with physical results. But the second thing is, we must not confuse physical fatigue with spiritual failure. And that happens a lot. These grand and glorious and, and supernatural events... Do not strengthen Elijah's faith, obviously. If these supernatural events had strengthened Elijah's faith at this point, he would be on mountain high. He would not just be physically on the top of Mount Carmel, but spiritually he would be riding on the mountain going, Yes! I mean, look at what God has done. And so my faith is greater because of the power and the miracles and the supernatural that I've seen. And that is not what strengthens faith. Gang, those things just add to Elijah's weariness. Now this may be odd. It's odd sounding to me even as I think it through. But it rings true in my own life and ministry. Let me explain this. I I love Sundays and Wednesdays. Absolutely love them. I can't wait to get here. But I'll tell you what. I couldn't do every day what we do on Sunday and Wednesday. Because when I get home tonight, I usually am flying high for about 20-30 minutes and then I crash. Sunday afternoons, I get home and I'm just, I'm a basket case. Great spiritual things happen here. This last Sunday morning, Heather was praying and we just felt like, God, man, the Lord was so here during worship. It was amazing. His presence was so felt. 
And yet I went home and I wasn't ready to run a marathon. I was ready to take a nap. Because the supernatural and the power of God can exhaust us. Even the good things can become exhausting to us. The miraculous does not necessarily make us stronger. More often than not, the end result of supernatural things is fatigue. Elijah's had three and a half years of the supernatural and he's wiped out tired. Now couple that with the fact that he's tired and he's not sure he's seeing the kind of results he had hoped for and the, the result is depression. He's burned out, he's bummed out. It's kind of like a day at Disneyland. Now this is not a, a, probably the best comparison you know, to supernatural things. But when you head to Disneyland early in the morning, you're excited. You can't wait to go on the rides. It's going to be fantastic, a wonderful day. The kids are excited. Everybody's pumped up. And by the end of the day, you're just... The magic kingdom is the tragic kingdom. <laughs> you know? I know. And when you're leaving, they say, thank you for coming to Disneyland. And I'm not sure, but I think the last time I actually heard them say, thank you for coming to Disneyland. Because that's how it felt. <laughs> by the end of the day, you're just spent doesn't mean it's bad doesn't mean it wasn't a grand and glorious day it just means that the supernatural is not necessarily what strengthens our faith why are you going off on this because gang if you're chasing miracles thinking they're going to draw you closer to the Lord you're going to end up exhausted you'll never catch up Jesus calls us to a better place Jesus calls us to a place called Sabbath. Isaiah chapter 58 ran across this verse this week. He says, It's because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight. The holy day of the Lord, honorable and honor it. Desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. And I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Did you hear what he says? If you will delight in Sabbath, I will make you ride on the heights. You want to be stronger? It's not in the pursuit of miracles. It's in the pursuit of the person of Jesus in the quiet and restful place. That's how we grow in our faith. Jesus sent out the twelve on a training mission where they would cast out demons and heal many people. And man, by the time they came back, they were pumped up, they were excited, they, were, they, they couldn't stop talking. Everybody all at once to tell Jesus what they had done. And Jesus' response was wisely, come away by yourself. Mark chapter 6, verse 31. To a secluded place and rest for a while. Settle down, guys. I think Jesus knew what was about to happen. They were about to crash and burn. For all the excitement, once the moment wears off, physically, it's exhausting. It tells us in Mark 6.32, there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. As Les likes to say, rest is a weapon. But rest in and of itself is not a weapon. Rest in Jesus Christ is the weapon that Les is talking about. Rest in the Lord. When we talk about Sabbath rest, we're not talking about the keeping of a day. We're talking about the keeping of a presence. And being quietly at peace with the Lord. This is where our strength is born and grows. In the quietness of prayer. In the simplicity of meditating on Scripture. That's where we get stronger. 
So Paul writes in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Well, in verse 5 it tells us a story going on. Elijah, now he's exhausted, he's wiped out, it says he lay down and he slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him and he said, Arise, eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones, angel food cake, (laughs) and a jar of water. Sorry. And so he ate and drank and he lay down again. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him. Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. Now that's interesting to me. As we've seen, Elijah is spiritually spent. He probably hasn't been eating right, at least since the days of being with the widow of Zarephath. Probably through this whole thing, he hasn't been eating well at all. Because, man, when you get charged up for ministry, you get going, you start to forget about eating and sleeping and rest. You just go, go, go. And this is what he's doing. And so after he takes a long nap, the Lord wakes him up. And, and I just, I don't imagine that the Lord wakes him up like many of our alarms do. I don't think the angel showed up and went, Elijah, come on, get up, time to eat. You know, I think he said, Elijah, wake up. Now I did that for those of you who are falling asleep right now. <laughs> Elijah, wake up, he says, and he, and he feeds them. And then Elijah, he's now got a full stomach, but he's still tired, so he goes back to sleep. The angel just waits. Kind of keeps watch over him. And a little while, wakes him up again, repeats the process. There is a tenderness here that is precious. There's a sensitivity on the part of the Lord before he deals with Elijah's spiritual state, and he's about to do that. But before he even touches that, he sensitively deals with his physical and emotional weariness. He says, first thing you got to do is get something to eat. And get some sleep. And may I just tell you that if you're dealing with depression or sorrow or you're just finding yourself bummed up, why don't you check your schedule and see how your sleeping is going. Have you been eating right? I mean, start sometimes just with the simple things. I found that I can be a real bear to be around if I'm not sleeping well and not eating well. And so he pauses. He gives him rest. He gives him food. And by the way, I have a notion, though I can't prove it, as to who this bread-baking angel of the Lord really is. Any guesses? Remember the word angel in the Old Testament simply means messenger. And many times the angel of the Lord is actually a Christophany. It's Jesus. And I think could be here. Well, why would you say that? Well, because Jesus has a way of inviting people to breakfast. That's what he did on the Sea of Galilee when he was over there with Peter and the guys were out fishing. And he called them to the shore and said, hey, let's, let's eat something. He has a sensitivity even to the physical needs of people. Matthew eleven twenty eight, the verse that we use many times, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this sensitivity of the Lord, even to the physical needs of rest and food for His servants, just reminds me of my own need in ministry and in service to make sure that I'm taking care of myself physically, that I'm eating right, that I'm sleeping right, that I'm not pushing it too much, that my family is getting the time that we need so that my ministry can continue and they don't suffer and I don't suffer. But notice what the angel says to Elijah about taking rest in food. He says, 
because the journey is too great for you. You gotta eat, man. You gotta rest because the journey is too great for you. Now, the ensuing journey after this, Elijah's about to get up on his feet and head south. And he's gonna pass the borders of Israel. And he's gonna head on down into what then was the land of Midian. And he's gonna head further south till he gets to a place called Mount Horeb, which you may recall is also Mount Sinai, the mountain of the Lord. It's a 200 mile journey on foot that he's about to make. The journey's too great for him. He's gotta eat something. He's got to get some rest. He's also had this previous journey, this spiritual marathon, this three and a half years of, of wonder. And that journey, I think, was too much for him. And so he's exhausted and spent and wiped out. Either way, the journey is too much. And I think that these are wise words for us to hear tonight. The journey's too much for us, gang. The truth is, we need to rest in the Lord. And we need to feed on the bread of His Word because without it, the journey is too great for us. I think the Lord would say, would speak to you and to me tonight, Son, daughter, come away and rest in me. Then rise and eat the bread of my Word because the journey is too great for you. Cheryl ran into a man on the last flight home. Second to last flight. Last flight home, she was glad not to talk to anyone. She just slept. But the second to last flight home, she ran into a man, sat by a man, and he started going off on church. Christian. I, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. But I'm just sick of church. And he began talking to me just going down the line. And Cheryl said he was so bitter. Not just toward church, but toward life. Toward America. Toward people. Toward politicians. I mean, he just kept going on and on and on in this, in this place of bitterness. And, and I was thinking about that today. That the journey's too great for him. And he's clearly not resting in the Lord. And he's clearly not feeding on the Word. And he's clearly not surrounding himself with brothers and sisters who could bear him up on the journey, which is too great for us. The journey is too great. I'm sorry, but I disagree. I don't believe you can be a Christian and not go to church. And I don't mean that attendance is what gets us into heaven. I mean that you can't walk this journey by yourself. You do not have the strength to do it. I don't. That's right. I need you silly people. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> I mean, don't we need each other? Isn't that why you're here tonight? Yeah. I mean, that's why I'm here tonight, because it does encourage. And I, I will be exhausted later when I get home, but I'll be happy. And I'll be fed. And I'll know I have brothers and sisters who care about me like I care about them. So that the journey is not too great for us. Well... The Lord now begins, after giving him rest and food, he begins the deeper process of encouraging Elijah in his spirit. And here's how he does this. You may want to jot some of these down. He begins by encouraging Elijah by way of revelation. Revelation. Verse 8. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights, again 200 miles, to Horeb, the mountain of God. And then he came there to a cave and lodged there. Some commentators think it was the same exact cave that Moses was in when the Lord passed by and let him see his goodness. We don't know that for sure. Came to a cave and he lodged there. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And so he, that is the Lord, said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. 
Ephesians. So, behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. In Hebrew, it's damamadakol, which you've heard translated as a still, small voice. I just, this is one of the coolest passages in all of Scripture. And I'm sure you've probably run across it before, and this whole idea of the still, small voice. Now again, Mount Horeb is the mountain on which Moses met the Lord and received the law. It was on this mountain, Exodus 24:17, that says, To the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And even today, there have been people who have gone on journeys to this area of Midian, and they've actually found a mountain. It may not be the actual Mount Horeb, but it might be. What's interesting about this mountain is it's surrounded by a vast valley that would contain, could contain 3 million people camped out. But the top of it is burned black. And I've seen pictures of it, and maybe some of you have too. It's, it's interesting to think, might this be Mount Horeb? But fantastic, wonderful, supernatural, historically amazing things had happened on this mountain. Might this be why Elijah went to Horeb? Because in his exhaustion, he's looking for more power. He's looking for more miracles. He's looking for God to be more fantastic and so he heads down to Horeb, the place of earthquaking and fire baking and wind shaking power, and he gets nothing but a still small voice. I, I love the Lord's work here. The first issue of importance with the Lord is true revelation. He's not in the whirlwind. He is not in the exciting earthquake. He is not in the flames of fire. His is the quiet voice, up close and personal, speaking gently to Elijah and saying, Elijah, what's going on? What's up, man? What are you doing here? Gently. Tenderly. I think one of the reasons, gang, we get discouraged as Christians is because we wonder why God isn't doing more with our lives. Father, why aren't you doing something bigger? Why aren't you doing something grander? I've given myself to you. I am laid out on the altar. Do something fantastic. And he just speaks in this still small voice. I'm like, yeah, but I want the earthquake. And he whispers, and I want the fire. And he's peaceful. And I want the power, man. Do something big, Lord. Let me remind you of something big. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is big. That is huge in our lives. Revelation 19.10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Gang, all the powerful, prophetic, phenomenal miracles are nothing but hot air and empty thrills if they don't proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, if they proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, more power to them. Bring on the miracles if it glorifies and elevates the name of Jesus in this world and before our very eyes. But they don't mean a thing without the declaration of the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is first and foremost what God wanted Elijah to know. Before he deals with his spirit, before he helps him out of this depression, he says, first of all, Elijah, understand who I am. I can do the miraculous stuff. But you want to know who I am? I'm a God who cares about you. I am a tender father. 
Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Verse 13, When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And then he said, and it's a repeat of what just happened, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Why does this happen twice? Well, the first time, Zane, I think God's question is locational. What are you doing here? Why are you here at Mount Horeb? What are you looking for? You're looking for the fire? You're looking for the earthquake or the wind? Well, let me show you those, and let me, let, let me explain to you that that's not me, and I'm not in those. Those are just wonders. <laughs> Those are something I can do with a snap of my fingers. So the first time it's a locational question. The second time when he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? I have a sense that maybe it's a vocational question. Not what are you doing here at Horeb. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you here for? What is your life about? What are you doing here? How would you answer the Lord this question? If tonight... You were all by yourself on Mount Horeb with the Lord. And he looked at you and said, Steve, what are you doing here? Donna, what, what are you doing here? Alicia, what are you doing here? I think the first time most of us would look around and go, well, I just walked here, Lord. I, so I'm here. What do you mean here? I'm, I'm, I'm just here. And then we would begin to think as he presses the question, yeah, what am I doing here? What is my reason for being here? Elijah, all he needs to do is say his name and he knew what his reason was for being there. Yahweh is God. Oh, yeah. See, I kind of forgot. I was so tired. I was so depressed. And I was so burned out, I kind of forgot what I was doing here. Elijah, this bummed out, burnt out, bent and battle-weary prophet, goes from being a called man to a caveman. A man of God... To a man in a hole in a mountain, he's forgotten why he's here. Sunday I hinted that this is the one chink in the shield of Elijah's faith. The one tiny little chink and it's self-pity. No one else but me is dealing with this. I have been zealous for you. I put my life on the line for you, Lord. I've done it all for you. And I'm the only one left. Whoa, it's me. <laughs> And gang, self-pity is dangerous because it puts all the focus on ourselves. I'm, I'm now wrapped up in me and in my experience and what's happening. And, and I, I just, you get on that downward spiral of depression. Life is hard on me and difficult on me and these people don't understand me. And next thing you know, I'm at the bottom of it, pitying myself and depressed and bummed and burnt out. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Don't forget that. The little cloud is on the horizon. The Lord is near and he will, be, he will come suddenly and swiftly like a flood. It's going to happen like that when it happens. The Lord is near. But listen to this. He says be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Elijah had the prayer part down. You know what he was lacking? The thanksgiving. See Paul says but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. 
Let me tell you something about Les. If Les gets going on prayer and supplication and forgets the thanksgiving part, he will burn out. Because the prayer and the supplication and the fervent fervency of it, that birthing prayer is exhausting. And I have seen Les exhausted. And I have told Wes, and he's told me actually probably more often, I'm getting out of town for a week with Donna. We're going away. And I'm like, go. Get out of here. I don't want to see your face. No. Go rest. Why? Because, because the prayer alone, it is exhausting. The Thanksgiving, oftentimes, is, is what we... And I'm not saying, Wes, that you're forgetting the Thanksgiving. But that's what comes when, when the ministry slows down long enough for us to look and see what God's really doing. And we can say... Praise you, Lord. When Les and Donna can get eye to eye together on some vacation time and say, Thank you, Lord, for this marriage, and thank you for this opportunity, and thank you for this rest, and the thanksgiving washes over us. And so, self pity gets washed out. It was thanksgiving that Elijah is lacking, and he's too busy feeling like he's the only one. It's really hard to wallow in self pity when you're worshiping with thanksgiving. Verse 15. So the Lord then said to him, Go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael, king over Aram. This is Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about. The one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. So now the Lord is moving on to the next movement here of of, uh, encouragement. He encourages Elijah by revelation, and now he's encouraging Elijah by exhortation. Elijah's in this place, and, and part of this gang, I'm going to tell you up front, I think this is, this is conjecture on my part. I can't fully back this up with Scripture, but I'm, I'm trying to read into what I think is going on. Okay? So you may have a different perspective than me, but I want to share this. I think part of Elijah's depression is that Ahab and Jezebel have gotten off scot-free. They're the ones behind all this Baal worship. The 450 prophets of Baal are dead. Elijah did what he needed to do by the, by the commandment of God in Deuteronomy. But Elijah and Ahab, or Jezebel and Ahab, are still alive. Lord, couldn't you have called that consuming fire down on them? Why is it that I'm doing all this work for you and evil is still running rampant in the land? That is depressing as a Christian, is it not? Don't you get bummed out when you're looking on the news and going, it just seems to get worse for us. People making fun of Christian things and schools getting the Bible pushed out further and further and, and anything having to do with Christ and, and yet Islam, you know, you can teach it anywhere you want. I mean, it's just, it can be really depressing. Why, Lord, are you not killing off the Ahabs and the Jezebels? I'm so zealous for you, but this wicked duo are out there proclaiming Baal and persecuting, well, me, Elijah says. Where's the justice? And it's interesting because there were a couple other guys who kind of had the same attitude, the same feelings, wanting to call down justice. Their names were James and John, two of the apostles. Jesus nicknamed them Boanerges. What's Boanerges mean? Sons of thunder. 
You want to know why he gave him that nickname? Luke chapter 9 verse 51 says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. In other words, these Samaritans in this village said, No way! You can't stay here. You're going to Jerusalem. You're one of those Jews. You're not welcome here. Well, when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Let's do some Elijah stuff. Let's kick some serious rear end. Let's fry some people. Because they're doing us wrong. I'm getting kind of tired of it. But we're told the Lord Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Ahab, amazingly, we're not going to get there tonight, but in chapter 20, God gives Ahab a second chance. As evil as he is, he's going to give him a third chance. As evil as he is, God still tries to reveal himself to Ahab, tries to save Ahab and thus save Israel without having to take Ahab off the scene. Why would he do that? Because salvation is his first concern. Because he truly is a God of grace. He doesn't just want to mold people down. He wants to give every opportunity to save. And so the Lord begins to exhort Elijah now. And he says, listen, I I still have work for you to do, man. There's still Hatziel, the king over Aram, the king over Syria. You're going to anoint him king. You're going to go anoint a king of another nation. Why would he do that? Because that king of that nation is going to come against Ahab. In other words, Elijah, there is justice. And you're going to anoint the next king of Israel, Jehu. And actually, Hatzael and Jehu are not even anointed ultimately by Elijah, but they are anointed by his protege. So it's through Elijah's work that these two men will be anointed. And what God is saying, his protege is Elisha, but what God is saying to Elijah here is, I got it covered. I'll take care of the justice. That's going to be taken. That's okay. I'm exhorting you here, man. There are three tools of judgment. You'll have a hand in anointing Hatziel, Jehu, and Elisha. I think that's interesting because God's response to Elijah's self-pity is to exhort him back into the very ministry from which he was burned out in the first place. And the Lord tends to do that. If you want to get out of self-pity, the best thing you can do is serve somebody else. The best thing you can do if you want to be lifted out of dark places in your life is get more active and more involved in serving other people. Doesn't mean you have to sign up for every ministry in the church. You might not even do any ministry in the church. It might be at work. Or it might be among friends. You might be, you know, pray to the Lord and say, What can I do, Lord? And the moment we begin to serve others, suddenly we just don't have time to think about us. And the pity goes away. And the more we serve, the stronger we grow in the Lord. And so the Lord exhorts Elijah to get back on the horse. We still got some riding to do, buddy. And then finally, number three, the Lord encourages Elijah by the way of the congregation. Verse 18, he says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Ministry is especially tough when you feel alone. Elijah felt it, but the Lord said, Elijah, you're not alone. I know you think you're the last one. There are 7,000 people who are as faithful as you are. He called them a remnant. Israel has felt alone. 
But the Lord promises even with Israel He has a remnant. Romans chapter 11, verse 2. Paul writes, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know that the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left and they are seeking my life. Paul knew his Bible. And Paul says in Romans 11.4, But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself, God says, 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, Paul writes, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. God always protects his people. God always provides for a remnant of his people. Now, two quick things to note about a remnant. Just by way of our study here, the first thing is very simply that the word remnant in Scripture always refers to Israel. I only say that because there's actually a Christian group, Christian cult group, it's a break-off, that's very works righteousness focused. It's an internet church called the Remnant. And that kind of thing, it's it's a misplaced name for a group that is uh, sadly very works oriented. But the remnant is focused on Israel. And the second thing, just to be aware of, is the first time this word remnant is used in Scripture. The principle of first mention, if you want to understand the word, go back to the first time it's used. It was used where Joseph is saying to his brothers, God did all this, brought me to Egypt so that he could preserve a remnant of his people. So all the way back in Genesis and all the way through, God has preserved His people. There has always been a congregation. Why are we talking about all this? We've got to remember that regardless of the numbers, we are never the last man or last woman standing. We're not alone. We are not alone in our faith walk. We're not alone in our belief in Jesus. We are simply not alone. And Jesus isn't going to leave you as the last Christian on earth. You're not going to be the last Christian on earth. You will have gone home long before that possibility. Jesus alone was the last man standing on the cross. But we will never be. We're not the only ones fighting the fight. And sometimes it's good, just good to know, man, the church is out there. And it is continuing to grow. And the Lord is working through this fellowship and other fellowships. Jesus said in Matthew 7.13, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. But gang, there are always few who find it. So don't miss the positive and, and the seemingly negative. He says there are few that find it, but the good news is there are few that find it. You are part of the few who have found the way to eternal life and you're not alone in it. You're a part of a great congregation and that's an encouraging word. So the Hebrew writer says we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses so let us also lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Well, let's finish out the chapter. Verse 19. So Elijah now departs from there. He's, he's back. He's doing better. He's a little more encouraged. And he, he left from there and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. And while he was plowing with twelve pairs of oxen before him, and he with the twelve, Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. That is Elijah's cloak. And the, and the cloak of a prophet was a specific kind of cloak. So when he did this, it was a sign. He's saying to Elisha, come with me. Let's do this thing together. Now, you don't see it here, but you see it in Chronicles that Elijah and Elisha had already met. So they already knew each other. There had already been some connection there before Elijah went to do this. But verse 20 says, He left the oxen, that is Elisha, 
And he ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? In other words, well, hey, what's the big deal? Go ahead. Don't worry about it. So, verse 21, he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen. That's the, the farming tools. He burned those up. He gave it to the people and they ate. And then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. We're going to learn a lot about Elisha in the coming studies. But I want you to just quickly note a couple of things. Okay, five. But, but very, very quickly. I'm going to give you a list about Elisha to consider. And you can think about this. Elisha is a rich man. How do we know that? He has 12 yokes of oxen, 12 teams of oxen. It would be rare to have more than a couple. And to have 12, this guy's well off. He's doing fine. And he likely had 11 servants who were running the other oxen out on this field. And if he's got 12 yoke of oxen, 24 oxen, and 11 other guys are there too, and he's got two, and they're out there working the field, he's got a large field as well. So Elisha is a rich man. Elisha is also a responsible man. He's running the 12th pair of oxen himself. He's not some wealthy fat cat sitting back letting others do the work. He's engaged in it. Elisha has no problem rolling up his sleeves. So he's rich, he's responsible, and he respects his parents. Now you can see in this when he says, hey, let me go back and kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. You might think about the person who comes to Jesus and says the same thing. I want to follow you, Lord, but let me go and say goodbye to my parents. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. So don't do it. If you want to follow me, you follow me now. Elisha is not being hesitant. Elisha is actually being respectful to his parents. And we know that because he immediately does what he does and turns around and follows Elijah. The person who asks Jesus does have a heart problem, and Jesus knows it, which is why Jesus says what he does. Does that make sense to you? Okay. So he's rich, he's responsible, he respects his parents, and he returns to them because he has a realization that his calling is for sure. Four, he's rich, responsible, he respects his parents, and Elijah is resolute. He's resolute. He has a farewell banquet with his friends. He sacrifices two of the oxen to have this banquet. And he burns the plowing implements. Why would he do that? As a symbol that I am done with farming. I'm going to be a prophet now. So farewell banquet. Goodbye to the old life. I'm now following this man, Elijah. He's resolute. And Elisha finally is ready to serve. He's ready to serve. It's interesting to me the description of Elisha's uh, development and training in prophetic ministry. The last verse, he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. His training wasn't involved in a lot of powerful supernatural stuff himself. He just trailed after Elijah. Elijah needs a cup of coffee, Elijah's there to get it for him. Elijah needs someone to bring in the scrolls, Elisha's there to do it for him. He just ministers to him. He cares for the needs of Elijah. And in caring for the needs of Elijah, he himself begins to be developed as a prophet. What's interesting about Elisha is the significance of his anointing. It may have been lost on Elijah. Elijah may not realize that the training of this next generation prophet, Elisha, Elisha is going to be a greater prophet than Elijah though Elijah is the one that we remember and Elijah with Moses called it you know the two greatest prophets in Israel's history but Elisha 
does even greater things. Elisha is even more powerful, has a greater impact on the nation of Israel, and his ministry will last several years longer than Elijah's ministry does. And I just tell you that to say we don't always know the Lord's game plan. We just know what the end game is. We know what's coming, we know what's, what's going to happen in the end, but we don't always exactly know how we're going to get there. So in this place where Elijah's been pulled out of his depression, and God has said, I want you to go anoint Elisha, because great things are going to happen. They truly do. Fantastic, wonderful things, and Elijah is the one who touches the life of Elisha. We'll see this in a few chapters, but it's awesome. When Elijah is about to go up in the fiery chariot, he asks Elisha, what can I do for you? And Elisha says, can I have a double portion of your spirit? And Elijah goes, well, I can't really promise you that, but I'll tell you what, if you see me go up in the fiery chariot, then you'll know that the Lord is giving you a double portion of my spirit. And Elisha sees him go up in the fiery chariot. And Elisha becomes so powerful, and you remember this, that after he dies and his bones are put in a pit, a dead man is thrown into the same pit, and when he hits the bones of Elisha, he comes back to life. Elijah is the instrument through which God works to bring Elisha on the scene. Now Elijah is a great man of God, and again, he's the one we remember. But one of the greatest things that he would ever do in his life, he does in anointing Elisha. And yet it's one of the most quiet. It's not fire from heaven. It's not outrunning a chariot. It's not calling down rain. It's just anointing a man with oil and saying, follow me in ministry. And there's more power in that moment, I believe, than in any of the other miracles of Elijah. Let me finish just with this. Elijah's now left Horeb. He's refreshed. He's ready to complete the task of ministry to which the Lord originally had called him. He's pulled out of this place of burnout. And I want to ask you how you came here tonight or where you're at in your life. Where are you? Are you tired? And are you weary or are you exhausted? Now you may not be, and if you're not, fantastic. But if you are, if you feel sometimes like you just barely have it in you, let me read one verse to you. The Lord said through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 35, Encourage the exhausted. Strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, Take courage. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. And the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. So however you came here tonight, take courage. Behold, your God will come, and He's going to save you. Amen? Let's bow and pray. Father, I can relate to Elijah because, Lord, in my own life and ministry there have been many times where I was just burned out. But, Father, it's so encouraging tonight to see that even when we get in a place where we are exhausted and tired and weary and burned out, it's not the end for us. We need a little rest. We need some bread. And we need a revelation, a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ. Father, that's the thing I pray more than anything else we discuss tonight. That you would give each and every one of us here a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ. That we
we would see Jesus better than we have. That we would draw back to Him, crawl up, as it were, into His lap, endear ourselves to Him, adore Him and worship Him. Jesus, we love You. And we pray that You will just wrap Your arms around us and encourage us tonight and strengthen us in Your precious name. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.